I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no ominous and gibbous. And the Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week on The Double Shadow, we'll be covering The Double Shadow. So, wait, we're doing this podcast about ourselves? Yes. <laughs> well, I know we're, we're awesome and stuff, but don't our listeners expect more? I think they, I think they have a pretty good expectation. <laughs> <laughs> what do we know about this story, dudes? Well, it was one of Clark Ashton Smith's favorite stories, and it was one of his least popular stories with, well, with Farnsworth Wright. Not with anybody else, but with Farnsworth Wright, the editor of Weird Tales. So he sold it to Strange Tales, I believe in 1932. And they said, oh, this is fantastic. And then they said, oh, actually, we're out of business now. And um, we're not going to be able to pay you or to print your story. And so he sent it to Farnsworth Wright. He said, mm, not really for my audience. Sorry, I don't think they'd like it because I don't know why. And the editor of Astounding Tales was like, they were having some problems. And so they couldn't take it right now, though they seemed like they had more potential, but he basically said, screw it, I'll take this story, I'll take these five other stories that I like that haven't yet been published, and I will publish them myself. Clark Ashton Smith, early self-publisher. So he made this little pamphlet thingy, and uh, had it printed in Auburn, California, and he had a thousand copies made, of which I currently have two, because I still, because Hurricane Sandy uh, interrupted my plans to mail Phil the copy, his copy. So we should get all 1,000 copies of it. We should. Yeah, we I should. have one five hundredth of Clark Ashton Smith's entire output of, nice. of Double Shadows right here in my apartment. <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. And they they originally sold for I think it was a dollar, and he had them printed for fifty cents. And now, of course, they sell for a lot more. Anyway, uh, six years later, in 1939, Wright said, "Oh, hey, that story, the Double Shadow." I might actually want to publish, actually. We don't have a copy of the correspondence. I have no idea why six years later he decided to publish it. But six years later, he realized it was actually a pretty good weird tale and decided to publish it. In, uh, in, the, in the Nightshade editions, in, the, in their like, supplemental material, they talk about that specifically and say that they... I don't really know what their citation is exactly, but they say that probably he accepted it then because um, at that point... Howard and, and Lovecraft mm. were both dead, so he was trying to get... Clark Ashton Smith was like his remaining blockbuster writer. Right, So he yeah. was trying to get anything he could from Clark Ashton Smith. They also note that when Weird Tales did publish it, it, it was the most popular story in the magazine that, wow. that month. So there you go. And I think at that point, too, Clark Ashton Smith was winding down because, you know, he was only really prolific during the 30s. So 39, yep. he would have probably been edging off the stories and selling less and so... I can see why Wright would take it then. And thank goodness he did, because obviously it was great that it went out in these thousand copies that he sold based on his letters over many, many years, even decades. It reached a much better audience uh, when it was actually put out in Weird Tales. My name is Farpatron, 
among those who have known me in Poseidonis. But even I, the last and most forward pupil of the wise Evictes, know not the name of that which I am fated to become ere tomorrow. Therefore, by the ebbing silver lamps in my master's marble house above the loud, ever-ravening sea, I write this tale with a hasty hand, scrawling an ink of wizard virtue on the gray, priceless, antique parchment of dragons. And having written, I shall enclose the pages in a sealed cylinder of oracalchum, and shall cast the cylinder from a high window into the sea, lest that which I am doomed to become should haply destroy the writing. And it may be that mariners from Lafara, passing to Um and Nor in their tall triremes, will find the cylinder, or fishers will draw it from the wave in their scenes of Bysus. And having read my story, men will learn the truth and take warning, and no man's feet, henceforward, will approach the pale and demon-haunted house of Evictes. There you go. So that's the beginning of uh, The Double Shadow. How exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. I agree with Phil's note that there are a lot of interesting and weird words in that opening. Yeah, definitely. I looked them all up. Do you want to? Do you want me to tell you what they all mean? Yes. <laughs> yes enlighten us and our listeners. Or a calcium or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is, a, is a type of Roman brass that's made of eighty percent copper and twenty percent zinc. And here's a another fact: it's also an ore in Skyrim. Really? Oh, huh. I'll keep my eyes open. I think the Romans probably took it from Skyrim. They probably did. I they love They stole Skyrim. a lot of things. <laughs> First, they stole from the Greeks, and then from Skyrim. <laughs> Typical Roman bolt. Beep. Triremes are ships with three rows of oars on each side. They're like a, a Roman type of ship as well. They're pretty big and hardcore, right? Yeah. They, yeah, they look like, like if you were to imagine like a, the Siege of Troy or something, they're like those kinds of ships. A Sina or Sina is a fishing net, and Bysus, this is kind of cool. I, didn't, I had no idea what a Bysus was. It's a type of filament that's secreted from a mollusk, um, and it can be used to make fabrics. The, the internet was like, it's rare to see fabric made from it, but you can... Um, well, it's secreted you from mollusks yeah uh and lafara is of course not a real place but it is a city that was mentioned in um voyage to Stephanomoe as being a port city on uh poseidonis so there's a little language lesson from that very eerie opening <laughs> yeah so that's cool so we got farpatron who's writing this letter i love the name farpatron i'm probably gonna giggle every time we say it I because it's, it's, it's so weird cool. sounding I want to develop Farpatronics. Uh, I don't really know yet what Farpatronics are. They might have something to do with mummies, but we'll, maybe we'll figure that out as we go through the story. But then you can go, you can uh, learn advanced Farpatronics too. <laughs> Which involves serpent men. Yeah, I, I, I like the setup for the story, you know, with the guy who's about to have something horrible happen to him, so he's written it all down. It's almost like the, the person, is it Robert Blake? In a, Lurker? Uh, no. Yeah, yeah, in Haunter of Haunter the Dark. Haunter of the Dark, yeah. Haunter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a very Please. like it's a very standard. I mean, not not to cast disparagement on it, but I wonder how many horror stories have started with some variation of this right. exact opening. Yeah, right. but I like, like that this. These version, are my last moments. I warn you not to do this. But in this case, the version involves, and I'm going to chuck this out to the sea. Otherwise, it's never going to get to anybody, which is kind of cool. Yeah, a little sure. different. Message in a bottle. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so Farpatron is a young apprentice living with this. What do they? What do we call him in? Atlantis, do we call him necromancer? Wizard. We call him wizard. wizard. Okay, yeah, I think he's more of a wizard. Well, he, yeah. he raises the dead. He's a necromancer. He does, but I mean, they go on a little bit later, and it sounds more like Malagris is more like a necromancer, and 
this guy studied uh, under Malagris. He did. Oh, he did, but he went cosmic He's... while Malagris went. Also, hold on, hold on. Yeah. What does this mean, an ink of wizard virtue? Yeah, I don't know. I, I just thought that it was a, an ink that only wizards use, or it's something that's really, that wizards prefer to use. Oh man, mm-hmm. this is actually toying at the edge of my, at the edge of my um, brain for this. Because... I took it to mean that it's, it's like how artists will use, like, India ink. Yeah. And that's like the ink of artist virtue, <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. That that can be analogous to wizards. Yeah. And really, how can't it be? Lictionary I... <laughs> has an obsolete thing, the inherent power of a god or other supernatural being. Right? So maybe it's like magic ink. Yeah, I guess. That's, I, I, I was thinking it was somehow imbued with something, but I can't back that up. Uh, so anyway, Farbatron, Master of Farbatronics, has been living with... <laughs> uh, this wizard Avictes for some six years, sort of foregoing his youth in favor of studying. And they live in this pretty amazing house that's right on the edge of uh, Poseidon, it's right on the sea. Stern and white as a tomb, older than the memory of the dead, and built by men or devils beyond the recording of myth, is the mansion in which we dwell. Far below, on black, naked reefs, the northern sea climbs and roars indomitably, or ebbs with a ceaseless murmur as of armies of baffled demons, and the house is filled evermore like a hollow-sounding sepulchre with the drear echo of its tumultuous voices, and the winds wail in dismal wrath around the high towers but shake them not. On the seaward side, the mansion rises sheerly from the straight-falling cliff, but on the other sides there are narrow terraces grown with dwarfish, crooked cedars that bow always beneath the gale. Giant marble monsters guard the landward portals, and huge marble women ward the straight porticos above the sea, and mighty statues and mummies stand everywhere in the chambers and along the halls. But saving these and the spirits we have summoned, there is no one to companion us. Uh, so yeah, it's like a big empty mansion that's been there for uh, longer Forever. than anybody can remember, and it's just yeah. full of amazing details. I love that since it's right on the sea, they can constantly hear the crashing of waves yeah, echoing yeah. through and the wind. And yeah, it seems like a good atmospheric. Place to be. We also get these great little details immediately after this about exactly who Evictes is, which then fills in a little bit of detail about Malagri, our uh, infamous Atlantean necromancer. We learn that Evictes is the last apprentice of Malagri, and we learn that Malagri died. He, <laughs> I don't even like, Malagri at some point died. Nobody knew that he was dead, and he just sort of lay in his house dead. But even while dead, he uttered spells of potency from decaying lips. I can't wait to do that episode. And I'm not actually kidding, because that's going to be an episode. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) And I love that he's like, well, whatever, we'll talk about Malagri later, but I just love that he's like an old woman who dies in in her house and nobody's there to to realize. (laughs) See, everybody's coming in, which is weirder. (laughs) Except when Malagri dies, like, he still whispers uh, horrible necromancies. That is not dead, which can eternal lie in its chair and whisper strange spells of potency. I like that Avistes is... And I'm going to say it, Avistes. 
And here's my argument for Vistis being a necromancer, that besides all the crazy things, and um, it says that he, sell, he separated from Malagris because of their different goals. Example one, wine poured by cadavers. I rest yeah. my case. No, I, absolutely. He does, he does do necromancy, but that's not all he does. He also travels through time and space and calls up genies yeah. of the sea and the earth. And, a necromancer and, plus magician. Yeah, he's a, he's a total, he's the, the complete package. When you want a sorcerer, you go to, <laughs> yeah. you go to a Victis because he can do it all. <laughs> but yeah, they do, he does mention, Farpatron does mention that they do have corpses waiting on them. Which he freaks him out, and I cannot yeah. blame him, because that's just, that's weird. weird yeah, weird, it weird. scared him at first, but then he got used to it. That's a great paragraph, too. I didn't write yeah. it out for us to read, but the the way that he goes about describing how he was afraid of these things, but now right. isn't, is pretty amazing. But use and custom dulled the strangeness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess um, you can get used to anything. Smith also used that in um, Maker of Gargoyles, about how everybody was crazy about the gargoyles. Oh, yeah. How scary they were, but then they just got used to it. This is a little bit more extreme. It uh, is. I'm just saying that that theme, like he, this is a, something that Smith is aware of, that people can get used to horrible things. The thing that, that runs through the story that I would be interested to know where uh, Smith kind of pulls it from is like, and I guess he, he sort of did it in some of the Everone stories. He brings such an amazing level of detail to his magic in this. He, uh -huh. They describe this like formless gray follow thing that's stuck outside a circle of seven colors. Mm -hmm. Like what? Like that's. I I want to know so much about like what seven colors? How do you know? Like what is what's the what's the to use a D and D term? Like what's the mechanic behind that yeah. ridiculous? Yeah seven colored uh circle and to keep that thing out i think it's just uh it's really interesting uh, i that whole because he goes for like two whole paragraphs almost mm -hmm. just describing how powerful evictus is how he can bend time and space and there he's constantly summoning up creatures to talk to demons of other planets yeah i think and Jupiter then they go garbage picking uranus <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's important to note, though, that 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 at the end, this whole sequence sort of ends with with Carpatron saying that Evicti is, is um, despite all of this knowledge he has, and his and his knowledge extends even to like secrets of the atom, like they mentioned mm -hmm. again, like atomic stuff. Yeah. It, it wasn't enough for him. He thirsted for darker knowledge. Maybe he should so, have learned his lesson from Malagris. Who knows, though? I mean, maybe. Well, we'll see what happens. I guess. Oh, that's interesting. I just noticed this now. He says, in the third year of my novitiate. Yeah, he was there for three years, but then... So it takes him three years to do what's going to happen in the rest of the story. There had been a great storm, such as must have riven the sea to its nethermost profound. But the tempest had gone by with the morning, and the heavens were cloudless on that fatal day. The demon winds were hushed among the high crags and chasms, and the sea lisped with a low whisper, like the rustle of gowns of Samite trailed by fleeing maidens on the sand. And just beyond the ebbing wave, in a tangle of russet seaweed, we beheld a thing that glittered with blinding sun-like brilliance, and running forward I picked it up from the rack before the waves returned and bore it to Avistes. The tablet was wrought of some nameless metal, like never-rusting iron but heavier, it had the form of a triangle and was broader at the widest than a man's heart. On one side it was wholly blank, and Avistes and I in turn beheld our features mirrored strangely, 
like the drawn, pallid features of the dead in its burnished surface. On the other side, many rows of small, crooked ciphers were incised deeply in the metal, as if by the action of some mordant acid, and these ciphers were not pictorial symbols or alphabetic characters of any language known to the master or to me. So they find this thing in the surf because they go out occasionally at low tide and they look for artifacts. Speaking Don't you of, think it sounds kind of fun being a Vixie's apprentice? Like, yes, you live in this big totally house awesome. and like you get to go for these long walks on the beach every once in a while and just like <laughs> you pick up like what do you, what do you call that glass that's been worn down? Sea glass. Uh, yeah, you pick up some sea glass and you're like, hey, a Vixie's. I wonder where this came from. And he's like, I don't know, Timatron. Maybe maybe we should bring it back to our our crazy house full of mummies and we can think about it a little bit and you're like and yeah we'll ask some spirits <laughs> I, I have a question though if he's if he's doing all of this stuff and this question kind of applies to Malagris, but less so because he seems to be into control why isn't Avistes searching for the answer on how to stop Poseidonus from sinking and that's my question maybe I, I guess do we know like when this because there's no mention here but it's here always that... sinking because if it's Poseidonus yeah, but... and not Atlantis it's always sinking maybe this was in a period where they thought Everything was going to be okay. Okay, fair enough. It's just weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 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 yeah. it's, not, only because it's not mentioned in the first Malagris story that it's sinking yet, is it? No. It's only in Voyage. And in, um, and in the next one, Vintage, because we find out it sank. Right, yeah. Right. That takes place but, yeah. well after. Okay, um, sorry, carry on. Yeah. I just, so I, right. I like that um, That when they're, he makes a point of, of saying that it's a it's a very calm day. It's not windy at all when they find this thing. It's very still when they find this thing on the beach. And then they find it, and they bring it up into the the mausoleum that they live in mm-hmm. and try to figure out what it is. And they figure it out right away, right? Nope. No. <laughs> the opposite of that. They even call up spirits and nothing. Spirits say, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love like the montage of spirits just shrugging and like picking yeah. their noses, and they're like, "Whatever, we don't know what that is. What else can you ask us?" Far <laughs> Patron, <laughs> if that's your real name. Well, this takes place in the third year of his novitiate, and it keeps going for another three years. I like the the pace of the story. Actually, like I love that it's not like they take it back and instantly figure out what it is. It's like right. it's it, like to my mind, it's like there's this shelf. Like the shelf of mysteries, where they have mm-hmm. like a number of things they're trying to figure out, right. and this is just one of them that sits there. And when they when they like think of some other spirit to call up, they're like, "Hey, ask them about that piece of glass we found." <laughs> Who the hell knows? Maybe they'll know what it is. It's got to be killing Evictus that he can't figure this thing <laughs> oh, out. Oh yeah, it seems like Fair Patron doesn't care too much either way. Yeah. But yeah, he's going slowly nuts up there. So, but they finally get a lead on this thing. Yeah. Yes. I I just, I am sorry. I have to just dwell on the, on this like weird like detective story that goes yeah. on for these uh-huh. three years i just i don't know i don't even know what i want to say about it except <laughs> that i just want to think about it for one more second because i just think it's so weird okay let's have a moment let's of silence just have a moment to think about like atlantean wizards solving mysteries by summoning spirits from other long lost ages one just one moment if we could Okay, let's go on. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's kind of like the fire demon ring. Right, exactly, yeah. Okay, just putting that out there. Anyway, so Phil, tell us tell us how they solved this. 
So they finally summon the spirit, and it doesn't say why they come upon the spirit exactly, but they summon the spirit of this long since dead wizard. Oh no, it was a, um, it's a, it's like a, an idle experiment. They're just experimenting with a chance formula. Which is even better. Yeah. They're just like throwing shit against the wall to see what (laughs) will stick. And suddenly this dude named Yibith, Yibith, spelled Y-B-I-T-H, shows up. I don't think he's Hyperborean, or is he Hyperborean? I don't know. He's he's um, he's long since dead, though. He you know he died many 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 years before, and he is like they show him the thing. He's like, yeah, I I know that writing. That is serpent person writing. But even in Ibith time, serpent people were a legend that nobody really believed in. A um, dubious legend. A yeah. dubious legend. But according to that dubious legend, they lived on a continent that was already long gone by the time Hyperborea existed. That's another crazy I love this thing chronology. About this. Uh, yeah, the, the chronology of the story is just nuts. Because it's not like, it's never just one remove from anything. It's yeah. not like this story is set in our time and somebody finds something from Atlantis that does this. It's like, we're already, we're jumping to Atlantis. And then from Atlantis, we're jumping to like Ibith time. That's right. then referencing Hyperborea, but only to say that this thing is older than Hyperborea. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's this amazing knot of like weird hoops that your mind has to jump through to try to like make sense of this and it's it's really incredible and then it gets crazier yes it does tim tell us how it gets crazier (laughs) okay once yibeth tells them that it's uh it's an artifact of the serpent people they dispel him and think about it for a little while and then evictes remembers that he has a spell where he can he can take a ghost the shadow of a dead man isn't it just a dead wizard though i think it's just a dead wizard is it only for wizards? It's an old Lemurian formula, recondite and uncertain, by which the shadow of a dead man can be sent into years posterior to those of his own lifeline and be recalled by a wizard. So yeah, so he can take a ghost and shoot it into the, the past. It's just fascinating that he can only use a ghost. Yep, it's it's a only, it only works on ghosts. So then he decides, hey, we'll do it with this Yibeth guy since he already <laughs> knows about the serpent man. It's so cavalier. Yeah. And so uh, they just cast Yibeth back in time and unfortunately he comes back with a language guide but, which but is really handy. it's even crazier than that because they send him back in time and then there's like isn't there some a little bit of language about how they just kind of like sit around they're like that was probably long enough let's bring him back yes something like that yeah it's it, it was just weird it's amazing well there's also a lot of great rituals in this too like yeah the, well, the to whole, send him back the whole ritual for the, the, the end, do i have yeah. written out so we'll have to yeah. we'll, we'll get okay. to that one but yeah so they they send him back they send this ibis guy back and then they bring him back to their own time and and ibis like basically brings with him this translation guide for the runes but it's mostly a transliteration because the ideas don't just work mentally right. yeah. for them. They, they can't comprehend the ideas in this language, which is uh, exciting. Then, it's a new spell, and they have no idea is, what it does. Yeah. Once again, in extreme Evicti's cavalier fashion, they're just going to do this thing. They have no idea what it does. Yeah. Well, uh, they know it's an evocation. They do. Yeah, they know it's an evocation. But they don't know what it brings up. And it's magic unused in countless centuries like unused in millennia probably this magic Farpatron tries to tries to warn him I have called up in all my years of sorcery no god nor devil no demon or lich or shadow which I could not control and dismiss at will and I am loath to believe that any power or spirit beyond the subversion of my spells could have been summoned by a race of serpents whatever their skill in demonism and necromancy so seeing that he was obstinate, 
and acknowledging him for my master in all ways, I consented to aid Evictes in the experiment. Of much that we did, and of certain agents that we employed, it were better not to tell. Nor shall I record the shrill, sibilant words difficult for beings not born of serpents to articulate, whose intonation formed a signal part of the ceremony. Toward the last, we drew a triangle on the marble floor with the fresh blood of birds, and Evictes stood at one angle, and I at another, and the gaunt, umber mummy of an Atlantean warrior, whose name had been Oigos, was stationed at the third angle. And standing thus, Evictes and I held tapers of corpse tallow in our hands, till the tapers had burned down between our fingers as into a socket, and in the outstretched palms of the mummy Oigos, as if in shallow thuribles, talc and asbestos burned, ignited by a strange fire whereof we knew the secret. At one side we had traced on the floor an infrangible ellipse, made by an endless linked repetition of twelve unspeakable signs of Umor, to which we could retire if the visitant should prove inimical or rebellious. We waited while the pole-circling stars went over as had been prescribed. Then, when the tapers had gone out between our seared fingers, and the talc and asbestos were wholly consumed in the mummy's eaten palms, Evictes uttered a single word whose sense was obscure to us, and Oigos, being animated by sorcery and subject to our will, repeated the word after a given interval, in tones that were hollow as a tomb-born echo, and I, in my turn, also repeated it. Before beginning the ritual, we'd opened a small window giving upon the sea, and had likewise left open a high door on the hall to landward, lest that which came in answer to us should require a spatial mode of entrance. And during the ceremony, the sea became still and there was no wind, and it seemed that all things were hushed in awful expectation of the nameless visitor. But after all was done, and the last word had been repeated by Oigos and me, we stood and waited vainly for a visible sign or other manifestation. The lamps burned stilly in the midnight room, and no shadows fell, other than were cast by ourselves and Oigos and by the great marble women along the walls. And in the magic mirrors we had placed cunningly to reflect those that were otherwise unseen, we beheld no breath or trace of any image. At this, after a reasonable interim, Evictes was sorely disappointed, deeming that the evocation had failed. And I, having the same thought, was secretly relieved. And we questioned the mummy Oigos to learn if he had perceived in the room, with such senses as are peculiar to the dead, the sure token or doubtful proof of a presence undescribed by us the living. And the mummy gave a necromantic answer, saying that there was nothing. Just a note, I love the phrase necromantic answer. I know. I know. Uh, so, Oigos. Can we just talk about Oigos? Yes. I'm a fan please. of Oigos. He's the greatest character in literature. He is a strong contender, definitely, for my favorite Clark Ashton Smith character yet encountered. The mummy of an Atlantean warrior. He comes like like a freight train out of left field <laughs> and just like hits the story like a ton of bricks. Who? What? Why is there a mummy named Oigos? Like, and apparently what? he's their assistant. Like... What's like? Yeah. Let's let's deconstruct for a moment. Yes. The author's mind writing this ritual. He could very easily have written a ritual where they drew, I don't know, a circle with two points, and right. they both sit on the circle, or even a triangle, and it's like one stands on one and one stands on the other, and like I don't know, they put a dead bird on the third point of the triangle. But no, <laughs> nope. Clark Ashton Smith is like no, it's a triangle. And there needs to be somebody on the third part of the triangle, and it is Oigos. <laughs> like, the mummy. The amber mummy. 
Whenever that is, I'm not sure. And then having like having conjured Oigos to be part of this scene, he kind of steals the show. Like he does. He, he hangs he, around. He like he, a he speaks. B for some reason he gets asbestos, which is the other thing I think is amazing about this Oigos thing, is that it's not like he's the same kind of participant as the other people. No, like they've also given him like certain different things that the mummy who participates also has to have. Like, yes. Yeah. And he's got his hands are on fire. Yeah. Like it's it really seemed like his hands were properly burning, which just was yeah. fantastic. It's great. He's he's like without the ritual, without Oigos, they couldn't complete the ritual. I love you, Oigos. <laughs> I also like that they left the doors and the windows open. I know, open. I know. <laughs> so, There's so, so in many... case a uh, spirit needed to come in physically. It <laughs> was such a nice touch. And then asking Oigos to... Because that was a good idea. Like, mm-hmm. And I liked that Oigos like, doesn't I'm... see anything. I also no. really like that part of the story. He like, gives a necromantic answer. Without, without Oigos in this scene, I think the most notable detail would be this great thing where they have to put these magic mirrors up to see anything invisible right but mm-hmm. because of oigos that amazing detail i kind of just forget yes. about because i'm just thinking about oigos the mummy I'm like what? oigos grounds the scene in a kind of weird reality because then there's even the um the 12 unspeakable signs of umor that they <laughs> link on the ground where they can retreat to if they summon something that they can't handle so good. This ritual is. We I should. Wanna, I want to take. Let's get together and perform. <laughs> there are three, three of us. Moment. Who's going to be the mummy? Phil. Obviously. Phil's uh, the mummy. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take this moment to extend uh, a hearty middle finger to every writer who's not Clark Ashton Smith. Yes. <laughs> but Very the good. ritual, unlike Oigos, is profoundly disappointing. Well, right. unless it you're work. our narrator, because honestly, what did. I don't know what he thought it was going to conjure up, but I can imagine in the six years he's been there and what he's seen, he probably is not too keen on unknown rituals. He seems fairly intelligent and cautious. And and every and Evictis is just sort of assumes that it it didn't work or they did something wrong, right? He's yeah. just like we obviously didn't do that correctly, right. and they mm-hmm. they just like go back to life, like Oigos goes back to wherever Oigos came from. And life the just mu- kind of he, goes there's on. a whole hallway of mummies. Yeah. yeah, he goes back to the mummy place. Yeah, um, but I like the uh, the other excuses that Evictes makes. He says either we did it wrong, or maybe the creature that we we're going to summon just doesn't exist anymore. Which or is maybe it's, a good idea. It's changed. Yeah. No. Yeah. They're totally logical for this weird world. Or maybe it's just changed so much that the this ritual doesn't work on it anymore. It's good logic for why spells don't work. They go back to normal life. And then one day they're out for a long romantic walk on the beach, but while the sun is out. Among the normal shadows on the beach, he notices a strange adumbration, which is also a shadow. And it follows Avisti's shadows. And it's it's strange because it's not um, a shadow the way we think of it. It's a color that's unknown to humans, and he can't figure out exactly what it is it seems like he's having trouble making out its color with his eyes and it undulates not like a real shadow and it follows them along the beach and then it follows them back to the house and he notices it following Avistes the rest of the day clinging to his shadow and slowly overlapping with it getting closer and closer and his first thought is i don't know what this is maybe it'll go away and i don't think he's logically put together what all's going on yet. 
No, and he doesn't want to mention it either. No. And I like that when, even when Evictes uh, walks into darkness, even when he walks mm-hmm. into a shadow, you could still see this other shadow. Right. Be- and he says it doesn't look like a beast or a devil. Like, he doesn't know what it's the shadow of. And he even tries to touch it. He even tries to, to see if it's an invisible thing standing there that casts a shadow because he knows idea. that certain beings cast their shadows that way. <laughs> but yeah, there's nothing there. And eventually, um, because Avistis isn't quite an idiot, he actually notices it. No, um, Farbatron points it out to him when they're oh, sitting. Okay. When they're sitting, Sorry. they're having some hangout time. Does he? I thought, I thought that Avistis right. noticed it himself. Yeah. Okay. Actually, yeah. this is a bit, and this is a bit that um, also made it into the opening because honestly, there's some good lines in this story. Yeah. And the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel pollution, a foulness beyond the black leprosies of hell. And I could bear it no more. And that's when he freaks out and tells Avistes, there's this thing in your shadow and it's creeping up on you and I have no idea what it is. And Avistes fortunately doesn't freak out. He decides it must have been the result of the evocation and then that it's maybe finally showed up. What are we going to do about it? Ritual time! Yeah, he's not scared of it at all. He just He's yeah. just kind of curious. I think it's cool. This next part is actually really cool where like, like he is very sort of scientific about it, Avistes, but after they try everything, like they summon all kinds of, well, they, they try to interrogate the shadow uh, using like every means that they have at their disposal right. and it won't respond. And then Evictus starts to get a little bit upset or a little bit scared. So he decides to protect himself inside the lips of Umor, which I can only assume is a pretty hefty circle of protection. Um, I think it's the same one they, they talked mm-hmm. about in the original ritual. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but even inside that, that ellipse, the shadow continues to get closer to his own shadow. Uh, and that's when Evictus knows that he's possibly screwed. Yeah. And that's, it's so freaky, but it's cool because it, it is from millennia ago. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't yield to modern powers. Ancient evil guys. I know. It's so good. It's like a John Carpenter movie. I have no knowledge of this thing, nor its intention toward me, and no power to stay its progress. Go forth and leave me now, for I would not that any man should witness the defeat of my sorcery and the doom that may follow thereupon. Also, it were well to depart while there is time, lest you too should become the quarry of the shadow and compelled to share its menace. Though terror had fastened upon my inmost soul, I was loath to leave Avistes. But I had sworn to obey his will at all times and in every respect, and moreover I knew myself doubly powerless against the adumbration, since Avistes himself was impotent. So, bidding him farewell, I went forth with trembling limbs from the haunted chamber, peering back from the threshold. I saw that alien umbrage creeping like a noisome blotch on the floor, had touched the shadow of Avistes. And at that moment, the master shrieked aloud like one in a nightmare, and his face was no longer the face of Avistes, but was contorted and convulsed like that of some helpless madman who wrestles with an unseen incubus. And I looked no more, but fled along the dim outer hall and through the high portals giving upon the terrace. But, uh, there's no escape. No escape. No. He tries to run, but he tries to get out through the terrace, but... Every time he rounds the bend where the stairs should be, it just keeps going around and round. So the, the I guess the thing casts a spell on 
which makes it kind of doubly awesome because you assume that before that he was able to leave so right it's really powerful and we have no idea what it is but it's actually not just stalking things it's weird it it, like the the like it almost feels like the style of the story changes here to me like it go like it it was never a realist story uh but at this point it becomes even more like a nightmare like it's just like he can't yeah there's something very dreamlike about trying to leave a house that you've lived in for six years and not being able to leave it which i just think is really cool in like a kind of surreal way so yeah he gives up and he turns around and and he sees someone he can identify as evictees but it's not evictees anymore no it's it's uh, like a corrupt monster in the mm. shape of evictees this again was, very nightmare it's somebody you yeah. know and they're not themselves they're wrong they're somehow very wrong and they in this the shape this evictee shape like beckons him back into their like ritual room and once he's back in there he finds himself trapped and he also sees that oigos is now also in the room and oigos no! our oigos has a shadow creature attached to his shadow as well now, as well. Which is, I think Farbatron actually notes that this thing doesn't care if you're a mummy. Like, yeah. it will, no. it's going to eat you through your shadow. Which is fantastic, because Oigos was part of the ritual, and he was the second person or thing to, to say the word in the ritual. But the fact that he's a mummy, that's... I think that's one of the most awesome things about using Oigos in this is that when we get to this point, it's like, yeah. And even though one of them was a mummy, you would think he would get off. He doesn't. Uh, no, and the horror had come to Oigos in turn and would <laughs> wreak itself upon the dead, even as on the living. The horror that came to Oigos is a great <laughs> title. Uh, and, but it is a horror because when it, when it touches, when it, when it finally, this thing, when it finally touches Oigos' shadow, he cries out like a living person. Yeah. <sighs> Again, shudders. Chills. And and Farbatron knows basically that his time is up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he has this moment in the writing of the story, this ponderance of what this could possibly mean, like whether this is one creature, whether it's many, uh, what it wants, like when it will stop. Is it just the three of them or does it want more than that? Yeah, I, I like that. Like, did he summon up something that's going to destroy Atlantis? It starts with them. Did we just solve Atlantis? I think so. Oh my god. <laughs> But these things and much else I shall soon know, for now in turn there is a shadow that follows mine, drawing ever closer. The air congeals and curdles with an unseen fear, and they that were our familiars have fled from the mansion, and the great marble women seem to tremble where they stand along the walls. But the horror that was Evictes, and the second horror that was Oigos have left me not and neither do they tremble. And with eyes that are not eyes, they seem to brood and watch, waiting till I too shall become as they. And their stillness is more terrible than if they had rended me limb from limb. And there are strange voices in the wind and alien roarings upon the sea, and the walls quiver like a thin veil in the black breath of remote abysses. So knowing that time is brief, I have shut myself in the room of volumes and books and have written this account. And I have taken the bright triangular tablet whose solution was our undoing and have cast it from the window into the sea hoping that none will find it after us. And now I must make an end and enclose this writing in the sealed cylinder of orchicalcium and fling it forth to drift upon the waves. For the space between my shadow and the shadow of the horror is straightened momently 
and the space is no wider than the thickness of a wizard's pen. The end. Oh. Good story. It is really a good story. Good. Yeah. It leaves so much unanswered, and I think that's really good. I know. So, do you guys think that those? Well, here's my first question: Do you guys think those shadow creatures are related to the Beast of Averone at all? The the writhing, the colors, yeah. it, the it black really, writhing with like really the squat like heads. Uh, kind of, except that that the the. the Beast of Everone explicitly comes in the tail of a comet, and this right. explicitly comes on like a very still day. Yeah, but are they the same kind of horror? I think possibly. I mean, they they possess. They're definitely there are some differences, but it's a possessing horror too. Now, do you guys think that the like if you went to Evicti's manor, it would just be filled with these things just staring at you? That, that is one of the creepier things about the end of the story is that they're not... And another thing that separates it from the Beast of Everyone is they're not aggressive. Or they no. are not, they're not physically Yet. aggressive. They're just bizarre. <laughs> yeah, they're like zombies, kind of. Where yeah. they, but even zombies are more aggressive. These just... Their shadows spread and yeah. cover the living and the dead and change them into themselves, but they don't even do anything. But once they've got Avistes and Fairpatron turned and oigos their assistant do they know do they take in that knowledge do they need to take in that knowledge no. think about everything that they've been doing so far if they consume that will they still start playing with them there's so much potential mm -hmm. at the end that you just it's so open uh to read between the lines a little bit i suspect that oigos was faking it and that he actually moments after the story ends kicks down the door and saves Farpatron. If you asked me to point to what lines I'm reading between, I would yeah. be unable to do so. <laughs> I'm sure they're there. Uh, we just need to read very closely. I mean, Orgos was a warrior, right? I mean, he was an Atlantean warrior. <laughs> Maybe he's dealt with this before. We don't know. <laughs> we, we, we can't say that he hasn't. I right. mean, for sure. You can't prove that he hasn't. I used to, when I was much, speaking of ridiculous, like, fantasy versions of characters. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to get so mad when I would read Dune, which I did a couple times, <laughs> that um, that Duncan Idaho dies in that ridiculous moment, because I just thought yeah. he was mm -hmm. the coolest character ever. So it, I never actually wrote it down, but like if I were ever to write like fan fiction, it would totally be Duncan Idaho fan fiction about how, he didn't, how he didn't actually die uh, when the when the Harkonnen uh, <laughs> take the... the palace or whatever yeah uh and like secretly lived to fight on because to to like young 13 year old phil uh duncan idaho was cooler than batman yeah doesn't wait doesn't he he comes back to life though like oigos does he duncan idaho did In, you like, ever read the, the, the rest of the dune books no i okay, read i read the second one 
Because in, in, in Dune Messiah, he comes back as a Gola by the, made by the Tleilexu, and he's meant to tempt Paul, um, or rather, he's meant to, to try to turn Paul. He's supposed to have been corrupted. However, he's the only Gola to figure out how to overcome his programming and become his original self. And then Paul's son, um, Leto, Leto the second one, becomes a um, the snake dude, sort of, the worm. Mm-hmm. Why did I say snake? The serpent on the brain. When he becomes a worm, um, keeps making Duncan Idaho Golas as his advisors, and they all try to kill him at one point or another. And then in um, he he marries, in, in, in God Emperor, I think he ends up with Siona Atreides, or he's meant to mate with her anyway, at least. This has been the Double Sons, your and then podcast. In, in, <laughs> in um in Chapter House Dune and in uh, Heretics of Dune. There you have it. Duncan Idaho lives forever. But not, but not really. That doesn't count. <laughs> point anyway. being point being, Oigos lives on in my mind, regardless of uh things that Frank Herbert did with Duncan Idaho. <laughs> yeah, because this is all canon Frank Herbert stuff. Anything else? I mean uh, it wraps think... it pretty nicely. I don't know it if does. there's a lot to uh I think the story is uh, a contender for one of my favorites that we've covered so far. And I think actually it, it, in like a more detailed um, biographical sense, I think this story and actually um, Classes of Yalorn were both caught up in the same like strange tales going out of business problem for mm-hmm. Clark Ashton Smith, which is interesting because they're, I think, two of his uh, of the best stories of his yeah. that we've read so far. And Farnsworth um, Wright was a bloody idiot. Well, he did publish them both eventually. <laughs> he did. I'll give him that. Okay, wizard battle. Nathair versus Evictes versus Malagris. I'd say my money would be on a Malagris Evictes uh, showdown with Nathair impotently hurling dung at them. Yeah, Nathair seems kind of like a brute compared to the uh, to the more refined Atlantean breed of, of necromancers. Yeah. Oh, wait, you didn't let me finish? Zedrak. Oh. <laughs> Zedrak is a wild card. There's no way. He killed us, after all, and we he did. were here. <laughs> he did kill us. So, what can I'm you sorry do, you know? I fought a Zedrak. Yeah, plus, we don't know if a Zedrak ever actually died. And remember, or where we... he ever actually came from. And that's the thing, like, a Zedrak might, might, might be, like, from the serpent person time. We yeah. have no idea his, no. the extent of his history or power, so. Or he may have gone to the serpent person time, because he could. But unlike the other people, not as a ghost. Do you think, and this is an important question, do you think a Zedrak has a goatee? Goatee. Yep, I agree. And a chain around his neck, like a, <laughs> yes. a metal, heavy, yeah. expensive chain. Bill? I refuse to answer questions about Zedrak because I've I've cast Avaron out of my mind. <laughs> oh, good answer. Didn't you say you're oh. looking for a Zedrak in every story, Phil? Are you being uh, I may have said that, but that was <laughs> obviously weeks and weeks and weeks ago. And I, I, you <laughs> know, I think you were looking for <laughs> Nathair. No, he was looking no, for I think, Zedrak. I think it was, was Zedrak. Was it Zedrak? Specifically okay. because he he is noted to have traveled through time. So, right. well, I mean, I I do I would. Uh, based on absolutely nothing in the text, posit uh, Zedarak as a pupil of, of Malagris. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I could agree with that. Based on nothing, except yeah. my own uh-huh. desires. Okay, so that was the double shadow. What's next on tap? Um, well, Get we're it. going see, to... See what happened there? Yo-ho, yo-ho. <laughs> <laughs> we're planning to enjoy a fine vintage from Atlantis next time. Join us, won't you? <laughs> Have a drink. I love you, Oigo. <laughs> <laughs>